If you smell what the pod is cooking. Yes, I actually did that. I can't take it back now. It's here. I'm Ben Rosenthal. This is Retro Trigger, a show where we talk about anything that is 15 years old or older. I'm also great at intros. Anyway, uh, during Retro Trigger, we cover everything such as Super Nintendo, Dino Riders, Dragon Ball Z. But today, we are looking back at one of the most uh, fondly looked at eras in professional wrestling. I am, of course, talking about the WWF, WWE Attitude Era. And joining me today is a man I've known for, oh, what, 15, 16 years? Got to be at least. I think 2005, I remember um, first meeting you. So that would have been about... Yeah, 15 years. Yeah. Anyway, Damien Slater's here. Yay. Yay. Big, big, big pops. It was big a huge pop. <laughs> so Slater, for those of you who don't know who you are, just give us a bit of a, a background on who you are, what you do and where you're from. Sure thing. I'm, uh, I'm from Adelaide, South Australia, much as yourself, currently residing in Perth, Western Australia. Boo. 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 Boo earns. I'm, I'm obviously a professional or a wrestler, uh, as we are covering the Attitude Era today, which was kind of how you hooked me on that one, because I'm, I'm not only a massive fan of anything retro, from TV to Super Nintendo to pro wrestling. Um, oh, wow, I've got a podcast you might want to listen to. Fantastic. I, sh- I really should, shouldn't I? <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, yeah, no, the Attitude Era is something I look back fondly on, because it's what got me into this great sport uh, where I've been performing for around about 18 years now. 18 years. Now, what have you done in those 18 years? You're very well traveled, but for those of you who don't have Wikipedia up and handy as they drive, uh, where have you competed? Uh, well, most of my, the bulk of my competition has been in Australia. So I was fortunate enough from a pretty young age, probably around about when I met you when I was 17, mm-hmm. to travel interstate quite regularly. So uh, Adelaide was, was a real good hub, being that it's quite central. Got and for me, always traveling interstate. Uh, have done a little overseas, spent time in Japan, uh, training and, and wrestling over there. Uh, have been to America multiple times, um, New Zealand, uh, Myanmar, which is a pretty strange one. Uh, the former, uh, the uh, yeah, the former Burma. Uh, I think that's the extent. There could be more in there. Let's uh, let's just uh, one thing I noticed that you, you not so much sidestep, but something I did want to bring up. Um, you're Damien Slater. You're, you're a wrestler. You've wrestled all around the world, as we've just heard. Apart from like in Japan, one time wasn't there a guy who looked a lot like you called? Oh, what was his name? Ocean Neil. Ocean Neil, no relation. No. no? Relation at all. He, no, no. So much like cool. you. Apparently Italian. Perfect. Really? Apparently. Oh, okay. Right. Have you ever come across Ocean Neal's path at all? No, no, you never see the both of us in the same room at the same time. Obviously. Oh, right. There's a bit of hostility there, is there? A little bit, a little bit. Yeah, yeah fair enough too. Uh, now, one thing people may not know about you is you actually uh, lived out a, a bit of a dream in competing in the Cruiserweight uh, Classic over in WWE. Was it three years ago now? Yeah, four, I think. Uh, four. Mid, middle of 2016, so over almost four and a half. It's, uh, time's definitely flown. Gee, um, so yeah. talk so us through that. Classic. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, that was the, the first and only ever Cruiserweight Classic, which was a tournament to crown a new Cruiserweight champion that they hadn't, they hadn't had in maybe 15 years, or not 15, maybe 10 years. Um, so uh, I guess WWE has been known for a long time as the land of the giants. And it was, it was almost this this unofficial thing that you had to be over six foot and over 220 pounds to even get a look in. And, you know, instead of being a, I mean, obviously talent is everything, but uh, that wasn't the most looked at aspect of being a pro wrestler. I guess it was also the aesthetic side of things and the physique. And especially when I was coming up, that was, that was everything. So for us, we never really thought that we had a chance being Australian firstly, so far away from, from America and, and a, a scene that wasn't really viewed anywhere else. No one really knew what we were doing down here, but, um, but also being under six foot, I'm, I think I'm a centimeter, I'm 181 centimeters. So probably a centimeter off that magical six foot mark and uh, definitely well under uh, 220 pounds. So yeah, never really a possibility, but in, uh, in 2014, they started to put eyes on our scene 
and for the first time they actually started signing Australian talent and it was uh, it was still mostly the the girls and a couple of bigger uh, bigger wrestlers who were very aesthetic um, but yeah. fortunately when they announced this tournament I was very much right place right time I was on their radar at the time I competed in a couple of tryouts both here and in the states and yeah they asked me to, to join this 32 man tournament which was uh, full of full of independent talent who had no contract anywhere else which again unheard of for, for unsigned talent to be put on you know worldwide TV and given this massive platform uh, but they also brought back a lot of previous cruiserweight champions and, and legends of, of wrestling uh, like Tajiri, the one that I um, ended up paired up with in the first round. Yeah, and uh, how, did, how did that one go for you? Not well, not well. <laughs> no, I, I was... Um, I couldn't be more happy with, with the fact that I did get that opportunity to wrestle Tajiri. He was probably, of everyone in the tournament, he was the most well-known, the most accomplished, uh, had a long storied career in ECW as well as the WWE former cruiserweight champion and uh, he's someone that I watched religiously growing up he was one of my favorites so uh, to get paired up with him you, you could look at it as okay you know that's that's my one and done I got knocked out of the tournament didn't get to go back uh, but in saying that to be able to shine against such a legend of pro wrestling was hmm. uh, I have no regrets. That, 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 that's the best possible outcome I could have had. Um, and I was, I was super happy with the performance, with the match. Um, I, think I, did, I think I did myself proud uh, in, in the circumstances I had. And uh, unfortunately, it didn't lead to anything else on the WWE front. But uh, yeah, there was a lot of positive feedback and uh, people seemed to enjoy it. So I can't really ask for much more than that. And at the moment, you're uh, in Perth, Western Australia. You're one of the head trainers at, um, over there in EPW, are you not? I am, yeah, Explosive Pro Wrestling. So this is, this is a place I've been travelling to since I was 17. So I've been here for 15 years competing, uh, often travelling to Perth. And four years ago, I decided to make the step after many, many failed attempts to move myself over west. Uh, so, yeah, moved over here and picked up a job as the uh, head coach over here straight away, which has been awesome. Um, one of the best facilities and schools I've experienced in the world. Uh, an amazing place for such an isolated city. Like, you think Adelaide's pretty small and, and isolated, but Perth takes it to another level. Uh, and obviously even more so with, with COVID, with um, mm. the fact that we can't travel and we're almost like a, our own separate island in an island. Um, but in saying that, you know, we have over a hundred trainees and just a massive, massive talented roster. So yeah, I can't ask much more than this has been a great experience taking my training elsewhere. Right. Now you mentioned before at the start that the attitude era is what got you sort of into wrestling. Um, before we go into that, I'll just give a brief rundown of what the Attitude Era is for those of uh, people who may be listening to this because they watch video games or dino riders and don't know what the hell wrestling's all about. So very, very quickly, the Attitude Era was what the then WWF transformed itself into after a long history of being a family-friendly program uh, and they, they skewed into a more adult-orientated product. Uh to describe the company's programming during the Monday Night Wars, the Attitude Era was, um, I, I think it was given posthumously or, or during the actual Attitude Era. Uh, it described when WWF's Monday Night Raw went to head-to-head with WCW or World Championship Wrestling uh, in a battle for the Nielsen ratings each week during the late 1990s and early 2000s. WWS programming branding as WWF Attitude from 1997 to 2002 featured adult-orientated content, which included an increase in the level of depicted violence, profanity, and sexual content. Mm. This era was part of a wider surge in the popularity of professional wrestling in the US and Canada, as television ratings and pay-per-view buys for the WWF and its rival promotions saw record highs. Uh, So it was basically they went a bit more risque. They stole, well, not stole, but they borrowed a lot from other federations like ECW and their sort of uh, take on wrestling, which was very extreme. And uh, yeah, sort of injected it into the mainstream. So what are your first memories of the Attitude Era? 
Um, well, I mean, the, the, the Attitude Era for me is, is summed up from, as the Jerry Springer era. You know, this is when we were, we were watching Jerry Springer, Celebrity Deathmatch. Um, you know, like there was just everything, Baywatch, like everything was just on TV was, especially for someone who was a preteen, you know, it was <laughs> crazy. like there was just, and there wasn't a lot of like parental control. This is the stuff that was on normal TV at fairly normal hours that to be honest, could just could not be put on in this day and age. But for me, I was, um, I was never a, a real big wrestling fan. I never really watched it. I, I was a big sporty person. So I, for me to, to go from a sport, a legitimate sport to a, a choreographed performance never appealed to me. And I never really gave it the time of time of day, but I was massively into horror movies uh, from the age of probably like nine to 12. So um, the Freddy yeah, Krueger's and Friday the 13th. Uh, yeah. All the slashes, Halloween, um, uh, Freddy Krueger's what nightmare on Elm Street is what got me into it. Yeah. And uh, you know, the parents never knew, but you'd go and have a sleepover at a mate's place and, You'd sneak on a, an old uh, weekly VHS tape from from Blockbuster or Video Easy, and um, yeah, you'd, you'd get some uh, Nightmare on Elm Streets in there. And yeah, big big time on that. And one of my friends was really into wrestling, and uh, that would have been 1999, which was probably prime prime era Attitude Era. That's when the yep. ratings were at the highest. Um, that's, you know, your Stone Cold Steve Austin's, The Rock, Undertaker. That's when those guys were really, really peaking. And my friend said, you know, we're going to watch some wrestling. And I was not all about that life. Um, but he put it on TV, probably like midnight, Channel 9 or 10, uh, six-month delay. That's kind of the only way that Australians could watch it. Uh, and the first thing I saw was The Undertaker get a blade and slice open someone's chest to sacrifice them to the devil or, you know, like, so for me, this was like prime slasher movie stuff. This is, hmm. I didn't care about the wrestling. I didn't care about the, the performance. This was like, what's going on? This guy's, this guy's cutting a guy open and you can see the, the, the fake blood and everything. And instantly I was hooked instantly. Yeah. And for me, it was Undertaker and Kane. I was watching those two very supernatural themes throughout their storylines and, and those were the two that got me hooked. And then, and then I would see The Rock with his charisma and his just his attitude that he brought to it and his ego. He talked about himself in third person all the time. And, and he was battling Stone Cold, who was like this, this blue-collar ass-kicker who just wouldn't take crap from his, from his boss, who was Vince McMahon, you know, billionaire. And, uh, and all of these different themes together, for me, was just, this was perfect. This was everything I wanted out of a TV show. Mm. And, and couldn't care less about the actual in-ring wrestling, which, I mean, if you, I'm sure we'll delve into it, but if you look back at a lot of the wrestling from the Attitude Era, it wasn't very technically sound. Like, it wasn't. No, it wasn't. Go back and watch it. And I, and, I've, and I often, if I, if I just want to put something on in the background, I don't put on any current stuff. I put on stuff from 97 to 99. Um, and, and you watch the wrestling and it was very short short attention span matches instead of going for 10 to 20 minutes as they do now, they were, you know, one minute, two minutes mm. at the most, maybe five minutes, unless it was a big main event pay-per-view that was so quick. And it was like car crash TV. It was like, wham, bam, thank you, ma'am. Onto the next storyline. Go, go, go. Cause they didn't want people to, to change the channel mm. and being that they were in competition with WCW, which again, having two, massive companies in competition has been unheard of ever since. No one's really matched that and no one's really battled in the ratings like they did. So they had to pull out all the stops and yeah, for a, for a 12 year old kid, 11, 12 year old kid, that was, that was unbelievable. That was un, an unreal time to be alive and get into wrestling. So for me, that's, that's what got me into it. Later on, I started to appreciate the actual art form itself. Um, my, my pro wrestling, personally is, is is much more technical and much more about the actual wrestling side of things now which is a polar opposite to the way i started where it was all character and story yeah i've got to say uh anyone who hasn't seen any of your matches they should really go to um 
go to YouTube and, and download some of your matches because you are easily one of the top, if not the best technical wrestler Australia has. And I've always said that about you and watching many of your matches from the sideline. Um, yeah, that technical side really just shines through. Um, for me, when I got into it, I still remember it was 1998 Survivor Series. So not quite the 97 screw drop, um, which, you know, we'll get into shortly. But 1998, I don't know if you recall it at all, but it's where it was Rock versus Mankind. And yeah, Mankind... I ever saw. I yeah. That was, on, that was on Channel 9, I think. I reckon that's where I saw it as well. Yeah, and uh, basically uh, Vince replayed the screw job, but with The Rock becoming the champion because Mankind was never going to be a champion. Um and uh, yeah, that swerve, I just went, whoa, you know, someone who was interested in character and writing, having that kind of swerve, um, yeah, just blew me away. But much like you, I, I'd watched it every now and then, sort of Triple H and Shawn Michaels with their DX stuff, uh, Bret Hart in there as well, uh, and The Undertaker and Kane coming in as well. It was likewise a huge hook for me. Um, but they weren't the only people I mentioned, uh, well, you mentioned some of them, but, uh, the attitude era marked the rise of many of the male single wrestlers, including Stone Cold Steve Austin, Dwayne, the rock Johnson, triple H Kane and Mick Foley, who had his three personas in there. Uh, the Steve Austin, Vince McMahon rivalry marked the central feud throughout the era with Austin labeled as the poster boy of said era. It was also the resurgence of tag team wrestling, namely the Hardy Boys, the Dudley Boys, and Edging Christian, or the SmackDown Six. I think that's a little bit outside of the Attitude Era, but they were certainly a part of it. Um, they were featured in several destructive physical and stunt field tables, ladders, and chairs matches during this era. Uh, distinguished stables established in this era, such as D-Generation X, the Nation of Domination, the Corporation, the Ministry of Darkness, and the Corporate Ministry, as well as the Brood, are among some of the others developed... Um, you know, a good old stable is, is what I'm trying to say. Let's talk about stables for a very, very quick second. Uh, what's your feeling of stables? You've been in a few throughout your time, uh, especially one that, uh, you know, you had a really good manager for. That, that was pretty iconic. Um, what was your favorite stable in said Attitude Era? Yeah, this is going to be a pretty left field answer, but my favorite stable was the corporate ministry. No, I can see that. Um, I, think, I think they were honestly around for maybe like six weeks. If you, I've, I've often gone back and looked at results from that era and realized that, hold on, this, this storyline went for three weeks. Like, this is unreal. Um, but it, everything just felt, maybe just being young, but everything felt like it went for a long time. And, but every single week had so much detail. And within a two-hour time frame, the TV shows just had so much that they felt like, so much longer, but yeah, mm. corporate ministry. So that was my two favorite stables who merged together. The corporation, which was Vince McMahon's, um, you know, white collar, everyone's good looking and uh, it's all about the money and blah, 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 blah. And uh, they were with the ministry who were a gothic, evil, satanic stable. Um, so yeah, putting the brash, arrogant nature of the corporation that had people like The Rock uh, but then they also had a lot of ass kickers like Ken Shamrock, you know, former UFC legend, uh, big boss man, uh, who himself was just this massive, like former prison cop who came out with a nightstick and beat the crap out of people with it. Uh, yeah. Putting that with those kind of evil themes and they came together and they had this probably like 15 to 20 people in this massive, massive stable. It was huge. Uh, it was huge. It was huge. And, uh, yeah, it probably made little sense as far as story continuity goes. But for me, that was my favorite uh, growing up. But yeah, always a big... I loved stables, which you can kind of see in my wrestling. I've, uh, I've had the opportunity to not only wrestle, but also write uh, or produce a lot of pro wrestling for the last probably seven or eight years uh, and really show my creative side. And um, stables have always been a big part of that. I've always... I've always loved the dynamic of having like stable mates, like a crew, people you roll with and um, just the different, uh, the different kind of stories you can tell when there's people who are on the same page, when there's power in numbers, when there's people who aren't getting along, when there's jealousy arising, all these different themes that you can really bring in uh, that happen in the real world. Mm. When you've got a when you've got a friendship group, you know you see all of these things happen. So um, 
yeah, I, I big big fan of stables to this day, and obviously yourself and and, and I, we had a a good run in the brotherhood. In, uh, in <laughs> we had a a two to three year run with this storyline that, um, at the time, wrestling had dropped off a little bit locally, mm. and there's always peaks and valleys. And I, at the time, I was doing some booking or some writing for Wrestle Rampage, and I felt like things were just Kind of, there weren't a lot of new wrestlers coming up. It was the same crew for a long time. And things were getting a little bit stale. Crowds were going down a little. And uh, there was one, one stable known as TMDK, the Mighty Boat Neil, probably Australia's biggest, uh, longest running and most well-known stable. And who's it? Just quickly, who's in that? If you can just sure. name off. So the, it, it originally began as Mikey Nichols and Shane Haste. Um, Mikey Nichols and Shane both ended up going to WWE and having a run with NXT. And um, who, who would we know Shane Haste as now? <laughs> I was about to say, uh, <laughs> Shane is now in a different stable uh, known as Retribution uh, on, <laughs> on Raw and SmackDown, I believe. Uh, and he is known as Slapjack. So <laughs> anyone who's seen Slapjack, he, he was the originator of TMDK. Um, Bronson Reed, who's now in NXT, he was part of the crew. Uh, <laughs> Tony Modra. <laughs> Tony Modra was, was a member or is a member of NXT. Of NXT. He's, he's a member of TMDK and also a member of NXT. Uh, Tony Modra, formerly known as both Brendan Vink and Elliot Sexton. I've got to say, if you have the opportunity, I know you are already Slater, but uh, anyone out there listening, if you have the opportunity, go to Instagram and just look up six foot five. That's Tony Modra's Instagram account. It is a thing of beauty. You would have no idea how a man... So uh, Modra is, what, six four? He's a pretty tall dude. The, the real Tony Modra or the new Tony Modra? <laughs> I'm talking about the only Tony Modra. <laughs> uh, yeah. but yeah he, he's six foot four yeah. um and he is ripped to all hell he's charismatic as all hell and it's just a really really good time and i don't know why wwe isn't doing more with him he uh yeah he's a uncut gem i would love to see the og brought in to be honest i was a big, <laughs> I was a big godra fan growing up being an adelaide crow supporter so um but yeah anyone anyone who knows uh mr bink uh and his personality uh, would definitely get a kick out of the fact that he is now known as Tony Modra. Um, there was Hartley Jackson in, in the crew. He ended up being a trainer at WWE NXT. Uh, on top of that, myself, Marcus Pitt, who was uh, my tag partner in Perth. Uh, Slex, who from Melbourne has gone on to Ring of Honor. He's wrestled in Japan, um, has done stuff with New Japan. So, And, and then uh, Mikey Broderick, um, our newest member from Canberra. So we kind of have representation all over Australia. Uh, hmm. But yeah, TMDK, mega stable, uh, quite well known in Australia and overseas. And there was just really no one who could compare to them. So my, my thought process with the Brotherhood was let's build a stable of those who can compete with TMDK so that they're not just crushing everyone and, and that kind of thing. So I kind of, I built this stable and, and each member of the Brotherhood had a rivalry with a certain member of TMDK. So there was, you know, Havoc, Chris Weiss, um, myself. And so we, we built up this, this long-term story, which was something that didn't really happen much. Everything was kind of month to month. You mm. kind of just play it by year and you, you'd only book one show ahead. But I had these visions of a, a one to two year storyline. Um, and, you know, whether coincidental or not, I found that the crowd's, really gravitated towards it, uh, numbers lifted and it just everything kind of flowed really well from one story to the other while keeping this overarching theme of TMDK versus the evil brotherhood uh, together until we eventually were disbanded. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I moved to Perth at the same time. <laughs> what a coincidence. Um, got signed to NXT. So um, all these things kind of happened at the end. So we, 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 ended up having to um, shut it down a little earlier than intended. But um, yeah, that, yeah, that was for me prime, prime, uh, prime stable war. My favourite part of that whole stable as, as the mouthpiece for a while uh, was when everyone was getting it together, we had this masked vigilante who was on our side called Anarchy. Uh, and he'd come out and he was head to toe covered in, in um, 
uh, in in a black and black and silver costume, and he'd tag with Havoc, and he'd win all these matches. He'd never say a word. He'd like this silent assassin, very good technical wrestler as well, the old Anarchy. Um, and then we got into a feud against you and Robbie Hart. Uh, yeah. And then one, you know, it was it was supposed to be Anarchy and Havoc versus Damian Slater and Robbie Hart. Um, but just before the match went ahead, uh, th- there was an announcement and footage of you backstage. You'd been attacked and were unable to compete. Uh, so Robbie Hart didn't care, being the uh, the good guy that he is, came out and said that he was going to take take on Anarchy and Havoc himself. So he did in a handicap match. Uh, Havoc and Anarchy were out there wrestling. Uh, there came a point in the match where Havoc and Anarchy, uh, sorry, Anarchy and Robbie were locked up and there was running of the ropes. Anarchy flipped over Robbie, but the ma- Robbie managed to grab his mask and revealed it was <gasps> Damien Slater. What? And I just remember... Uh, the silence of that crowd because no one had any idea because at the time you were pulling double duty as that character. You were wrestling as Damien Slater and then also wrestling the same night as Anarchy. Yeah. Uh, It was tough. That was tough. I I regretted that immediately. That, that whole idea. (laughs) (laughs) I remember there was, there was one show, I think it was, I don't even think it was that show. I think it was the show before, but we had a rumble. So Royal rumble, which was like 30 person, elimination match we had that and then i had a match as anarchy and a match as slater and i was in the rumble as both so i had to start off masked full body suit get eliminated got changed out of my stuff into damien slater gear and then did the rumble and then got back into anarchy gear and then slater gear for the main event so i ended up having four matches Um, bloody hell (laughs) and and the, the whole I, the the storyline wasn't the reason why I did that. I, I honestly, at that time, I just wanted to wrestle as much as I could because that was kind of before, that's before WWE came knocking and before there were really any opportunities. And I just thought like, I just, I want to get more wrestling in. We don't get a, we don't get a lot in Australia considering, you know, we're only wrestling once, once every few weeks, maybe, maybe you get interstate bookings here and there, but yeah, I just wanted to wrestle more. So I thought in America, a lot of the time the the indie wrestlers all have a side character that, mm. that's marked. And it's just so they can make extra money basically and get, get extra bookings. And yeah, so I had this in hindsight, just this dumb costume, but it was all I could find online. Just this dumb Deadpool fake costume. And, uh, but you know, like rest, the, the crowds were down and at that point it was like, who cares? You know, just, just yeah. do it. I remember we, we made it onto a, a very popular Facebook called Trash Bag Wrestlers, which was where they would put the most unesthetic looking, just overweight, terrible wrestlers you've ever seen in your life. They would find these like rednecks who just, just hilarious, this page. And I followed it and I love this page. I used to always uh, read it. And then I appeared in it. (laughs) Um, I was the banker. Yeah, you were the banker in your trench coat. Um, and I was this uh, Deadpool ripoff, and then yeah. Anyway, in hindsight, probably looked terrible. But the uh, the one thing I'm proud of is the fact that no one really knew that it was me under the the suit. Which I thought straight away people are going to know. Like, how do you not realize? But um, I did everything in my power to completely change my move set, change the way I walked, change the noises I made. Uh, and when we did the big reveal. Again, I thought, this is obvious. Like, oh, Slater hasn't rocked up for the match. I wonder who's under the mask. It's been done a million (laughs) times in wrestling before and no one picked it. And that's kind of what kicked off our storyline from there. Uh, So, yeah, that's that's definitely something I look back on fondly. That was a lot of fun um, to be able to do different personalities. And and I've always been a big fan of the surprise reveals. And and I'm always into swerves, which uh, sometimes are overdone. Yeah, uh, I feel like if you have the right number of swerves and you can you can get the hardcore fans guessing, that is the perfect storyline. Well, I think it came from the Attitude Era where that uh, mystery reveals and this hardcore swerves just sort of like were were a thing that were almost weekly in the the WWE in the Attitude Era. Um, but a lot of people wonder where or how the Attitude Era started. So I've just got a little, two little things which I think are, are the main catalyst for the Attitude Era. The first being the birth of Austin 316. Now, before this, Austin was known as the Ringmaster and he was managed by Ted DiBiase. 
uh, beating Jake the Snake at King of the Ring 1996. Austin uttered the famous words after winning King of the Ring, Jake the Snake, you go on about John 3.16. Well, Austin 3.16 says, I just kicked your ass. Um, from there, he went on to stun Vince McMahon at the time. Was it then that people knew that Vince was the boss or was that before that they knew Vince was the boss? That was before. Um, like people kind of knew if they followed behind the scenes stuff, but even, you know, the internet was kind of, kind of elementary at that point. It was, there wasn't a lot of dirt sheets and dirt sheets being the, um, you know, behind the scenes TMZ style news. There wasn't a lot of that out there. So if you were a hardcore fan, you, you, you knew. But um, for those who were just casual fans, it wasn't actually formally announced that Vince was the owner. He was just the commentator at the time. Mm. And yeah, he was uh, interviewing uh, Stone Cold at the time, I believe. And that, that is what spurred this whole big boss versus angry employee yeah. story that yeah. really was probably the best known storyline in, in, in WWE history or some might even say wrestling history. And, you know, uh, Vince was just, uh, you know, a, a commentator back then. But I think the evil Mr. McMahon billionaire character came about uh, from the Montreal Screwdrop. Now, did you want to give a quick recap of uh, what the Montreal Screwdrop is? Sure. Um, so that was in 97, Survivor Series, I believe, in 97. Mm-hmm. Um, so Bret Hart was the champion at the time, and he was feuding with Shawn Michaels, who were, again, kind of polar opposites, both on screen and off. Sean being a very brash, confident, um, charismatic wrestler who had a lot of issues behind the scenes with politicking, uh, you know, politicking being getting, getting, getting his mates good, good gigs, basically kind mm-hmm. of like, you know, get, do, doing right by himself and his mates and not anyone else, um, trying to get creative control in terms of storylines and, and stuff like that. You know, you hear a lot of stories. Uh, Bret Hart was a little bit more like the clean cut, uh, great technical wrestler, did things the right way, was brought up in a very, uh, very well-known training place called The Dungeon by his mm. dad, Stu Hart, who, who was a real hard-ass, no-nonsense, like pay your dues, work your way up the right way. So, you, you know, you kind of had Sean, who was really representative of the Attitude Era that was about to come. He He was that guy that, he was the guy that would have been perfect on a Jerry Springer or a Baywatch, whereas Brett was the traditional, the traditionalist. He was the, the real wrestler. Um, and, you know, from what everyone, everything's been told is they had a lot of issues behind the scenes. Uh, they wanted Brett Hart to drop the championship, meaning lose it before mm-hmm. he went to WCW. Um, yep. WWF couldn't pay him enough. He ended up uh, taking a deal with WCW and he was about to finish up his big run. Now, from what every from everything that's been said in the documentaries and interviews, Brett had no issue losing it to Shawn Michaels, but he didn't want to lose it in his hometown. So he was yeah. in uh, Calgary, didn't mm-hmm. want to lose it in his hometown, was happy to do a uh, disqualification or a false finish. And then even the next night on Raw, was happy to lose it to Shawn Michaels. Um, or I think another option that he offered was to lose it to someone else and then they could lose it to Sean. So uh, I believe he also had creative control at the time. I could be wrong. I think of his character? Uh, he had like a Hogan yeah. type deal? Yeah. I think Brett had a deal in his contract where he kind of had a little bit of control in the last few months of his time. So he was allowed to kind of yes or no certain storylines and things. And that was his only request. Um, I probably sound like a big Bret Hart fan, which I am. <laughs> I was always on Bret, Bret's side. I'm never a big Shawn Michaels fan until much later on. Um, so Bret was my guy. So anyway, yeah, you come to this pay-per-view. They had this, uh, this match and Shawn Michaels ends up locking Bret Hart in his own finishing move, the sharpshooter. And instantly, the referee, uh, Earl Hebner, calls for the bell. And Bret didn't tap but the referee called for the bell as if he did. Uh, at which case, the referee <laughs> ran out of the ring. Oh, yeah. Got into, got into a, uh, a parked uh, into a car that was waiting for him and sped off. Um, and Earl was good friends with Brett, so he kind of double-crossed him as well. Mm. And, uh, and Sean denied it, denied that he knew anything of it. And uh, there's this famous scene where straight afterwards, Bret Hart stands up spits a huge loogie on Vince who was standing at ringside. Obviously Brett knew that he had been double crossed 
and uh, then painted the WCW into the air uh, to mm. signal that he was out of there and then uh, went backstage and famously knocked out Vince, apparently. Gave him a, yep. big, uh, a big left, right, good night to the eye. So that was the story of the Montreal Screwjob. Sean denied it for a long time until he eventually kind of admitted it. And, uh, and again, that kind of signaled that evil Vince McMahon character because he legitimately had double-crossed the champion of the company. Mm. And very next night on Raw, he was sat down to an, with an interview with Jim Ross and uttered those famous words. Vince McMahon didn't screw Brett. Brett screwed Brett. So it sort of got his point of view across that, uh, no, had Brett played ball and did what he was supposed to do for the good of the company, this wouldn't have happened. Um, and that, I think, just uh, catapulted this Vince McMahon character into uh, the stratosphere. And then, of course, you had your uh, Austin come in in the place of Bret Hart, who was off to greener pastures. Well, not really, but... Uh, and their rivalry went on to finally get uh, WWF out of... Well, in the lead in the Monday Night Wars with WCW. Uh, April 13, 1998, Austin and McMahon were going to batter up their differences in an actual match, but the match was declared a no contest when Mick Foley, as Dude Love, interrupted the entire contest. On that night, Raw defeated Night Drone. The ratings for the first time since June 10, 19. 1996. Uh, Austin McMahon. Do you have the the actual ratings? Do you have the numbers? I don't have the numbers. No, but uh, I I think that was a, it it was a slither, but it was the first time they won that hour. Very close. But I remember both companies were sitting very high. um, Oh, they were getting sixes. 6.1, 6.2. High to the attitude era. It was even higher than that. Didn't it go up to eight at some point? Possibly. Yeah. To to put that into hindsight these days, to get a rating of, like a what is that like a two now a two mm. is considered pretty good so um yeah you're well, talking about millions of people watching both shows simultaneously yeah and raw at the moment i think gets around 1.7 this is their, their main television show right now no no real competition and, and primetime attitude here 99 you got both wcw and wwf running at the same time uh, where people are having to pick and choose what they watched. And if there was a commercial break, if there was something they didn't like, they could flick over mm. very easily to the competitor. So, yeah, crazy, crazy time. Uh, the rivalry between Austin and McMahon throughout the Attitude Era continued, bringing increased revenue and attention to the company. The rivalry got more intense as time went on, with McMahon trying to sabotage Austin whenever he could from, to stop him from becoming WWF champion. Austin often exacted revenge on McMahon, such as attacking McMahon with a bedpan while he was in hospital, stealing a cement mixer and driving it to the arena, then filling up one of McMahon's Corvette cars with cement, driving a Zamboni to the ring before attacking Vince McMahon, leading to Austin's arrest once again, kidnapping Vince McMahon in a wheelchair, wheeling him down the ring at gunpoint, which then ended up actually being a toy gun with a scroll that read Bang 316, with McMahon so scared he urinated himself, which is a, an old McMahon, McMahon classic. And finally, possibly the most iconic scene of Austin driving a beer truck to the ring and using a fire hose to spray the corporation, uh, Vince, Shane, and The Rock, with beer. Uh, Austin wrestled McMahon in the 1999 St. Valentine's Day Massacre in a steel cage, which he won when... a debuting a big show jumping over from WCW accidentally threw him through the cage uh, with Austin landing on the ground, thus allowing him to win a title shot at WrestleMania 15 throughout the rivalry. McMahon found uh, I do this from time to time throughout the rivalry. McMahon founded two heel factions, the corporation and the corporate ministry, which we've spoken about using several wrestlers to face Austin, including The Rock, The Undertaker, Kane, and Big Show. Uh, That rivalry, yeah, just, I mean, we've spoken about it a lot, but what more can you say? It it was just the absolute linchpin of the whole industry at that point. Um, And the ingenuity and the, uh, like, every week seemed to be, oh, what can Austin do this week? And he just continually one-upped himself with uh, his stunts over events. Yeah, so it's, it's, it was a time when there wasn't much TV as well. Like Raw was their main show and, and only when with commercial breaks, maybe like an hour and a half, hour mm. 40 of content. And they didn't bring SmackDown in until I think, what, 2000, 2001? Yep. Or maybe it was 99. Um, but SmackDown was like their second sideshow. But 
even still to compare that to today where you've got three hour Raws and SmackDown and NXT and you've got all this television product back then it was, you were craving more at the end of every episode. I'd watch yep. an episode of Raw and I had to watch it again. Like hmm. it was so gripping and you could not wait for the next week. Like there were cliffhangers and, and it was written like very, very well produced, well structured television, which I just don't think is, is really seen anymore. But I mean, it wasn't really written like it's written now. Uh, again, Jericho and his podcast said that, um, that the SmackDown was when Vince decided that they needed actual writers to start scripting for the wrestlers. Um, up until that point, it was like, oh, this is the angle that's booked. This is what we need the outcome. Go out and do it. Um, now, speaking as a wrestler, do you prefer to go out and just feel the crowd and get across the points and get to the point B where you need to be at the end of the promo? Or would you prefer something written and memorizing it and then trying to pass it off, even though it's someone writing for your character who, who you don't see the same uh, representation with? Oh, absolutely. The former. Like, there's nothing... There's nothing organic about reading off a script. And um, on the independent level, we never have our promos written for us. We have a, an endpoint. Mm. We know the storyline. We know what we have to kind of get across. But we, we do it all ourselves. And it's kind of up to the wrestler whether they want to script something or whether they want to just have dot points. And I've always been a dot point person because I like, I like playing off the crowd. I don't like having to try to remember things because it comes across in your reactions and your emotions. and um, everything feels a bit more organic if you just have a few bullet points and you know what you're trying to get across and that's it. Yep. So that, that was kind of, yeah, the era for, you listen to a lot of these old Attitude Era guys in their podcasts and their interviews and they talk about how, yeah, they wrote their own stuff and it just doesn't really happen anymore on a grand scale. Most people are reading, well, uh, reading pre-written dialogue that's it and uh it's very hard unless you are a tremendous actor to get that across with the perfect emotional reaction and response and then if the crowd is different if the crowd are responding differently well how do you get them back on track how do you you've got to be able to improvise so mm. um that's and and look if there were if there was no improv and there was no just calling it on the fly you never would have had your Stone Cold 316. No. It, it came from that. You never would have had a lot of what The Rock said and, and what made him famous. You never would have had Jericho uh, getting himself across in certain ways. So, uh, if, yeah, I, it baffles me that this is not a more common thing. And I feel like too much micromanagement just dulls everything. Absolutely. Uh, speaking of The Rock, do you know he was only in wrestling for eight years? It's insane. It's eight years. Not just him, but like even a lot of the guys around that time. Stone Cold was only on in WWE for what ninety six to, I mean, really after after ninety nine two thousand he he slowed down and he only mm. had a few more major matches. But yeah, I mean, compare that to now. John Cena has been on uh, not the last couple of years. He's been in the movies, but. He was on top for like, what, 15 years or something ridiculous? Yeah, There's the John a Cena reign, as it's uh, cynically referred to as, uh, has lasted longer than the entire Attitude Era. Big time. Even, yeah. even Kurt Angle uh, came in 99 and he was really only on top until, what, like 2005 maybe? Mm -hmm. He went to TNA Impact, went to one of the rival companies and had spent far longer there than he ever did in WWE. But you remember these guys because they made such an impact in such a short period of time. And I think a lot of that was to do with the way the shows just were at the time. And mm. not to take away from the wrestlers themselves, they did extremely well to do so well in a short period, but everything was just so go, go, go. Yeah. So you, rem you remember like, if you look at some of those moments you mentioned about, Stone Cold and Vince and, and you go, okay, you know, there was Vince getting drenched in beer. There was Vince getting his Corvette smashed. There was this, there was this, there was the hospital bedpan situation. And then you look at when it actually happened and they're all within like a two month period. Yep. It's built up to a single match. Absolutely. And so good for, for post watching to go back and binge a few months of old attitude era stuff is, uh, is a real pleasure and, and a lot it's, it's quite easy to do. 
Now let's talk about some of the other people who were involved in the Attitude Era very, very quickly. Uh, DX. So of course we had China, Triple H and uh, Shawn Michaels with then Shawn stepping away after WrestleMania 15 to focus on uh, recovery from a back injury. Uh, and then the night after WrestleMania, Road Dog Jesse James and Badass Billy Gunn joined with X-Pac, become uh, Degeneration X. Uh, anti-authoritarian, but unlike Austin, they were more of a, a juvenile frat party uh, who sort of feuded with the nation and uh, corporation and whatnot. Um, any, uh, any fond memories of DX? Yeah, DX were, were a big one as well um, because, again, they, they kind of pushed those, they pushed those lines. They, they, they really started to make things a little more risque. And, yeah, like you said, the differences between them and a Stone Cold is they weren't really ass kickers. Like they could be if they needed to, but they were a little bit more like the cowardly type, you know, the, the talk smack and then run away or talk smack and then blindside someone. But um, there was a lot of humor in what they did. And, and unlike the, the incarnations that came afterwards where the humor was very child friendly and very uh, PG, mm. the humor was like real MA, MA stuff. Um, you know, they were getting, uh, they were, they were getting people in like girls in the crowd to flash and which is like prime nineties television. <laughs> totally. <laughs> just, just so nineties. Um, and, and just a lot of uh, subtle inside jokes and subtle references that an 11 year old kid like myself had no idea what they were talking about, but watching it back now, I completely get it. So um, yeah, it, there was, I always, I always hear it referred to as flavors of ice cream. Like everyone has their own preferred flavor. Mm-hmm. And, and that, was, that was the best thing about that kind of era is some people were DX fans, some people loved the Stone Colds, some people were more like a rock corporation and some people loved the evil ministry. Yeah. So well, let's talk, about, let's talk about Under, Undertaker and Kane throughout that because I think in this period, this is where Undertaker really hit the, you know, the peak taker, like what he's most well known for. Um, just before the debut of Kane, as well as uh, the feud with Kane, and then going to be, um, oh, how would you describe him? When he didn't have a moustache, and he just was the leader of the ministry and went full demonic and crucified yeah. Austin, and then kidnapped Stephanie McMahon and went to make her his dead bride or, or stuff like that. You mentioned before yeah. Undertaker and Kane's what uh, pulled you in. What do you think uh, was so appealing about that, besides the, the horror angle side of things? Uh, I think it was the fact that they both did such a good job at just seeming like they weren't human. Mm. I, I don't know that's kind of part of the supernatural part, but like I used to have nightmares about Kane chasing me down, like as if it was like Michael Myers. Like they, they did such a good job with their wrestling and with their characters to, they weren't, they didn't wrestle like a, like a, a wrestler, you know, they came in, they punched, they kicked and they both did the exact same move because they were brothers. Mm. And it was kind of like watching Scorpion and Sub-Zero in Mortal Kombat. You know, That's they, exactly what it was. Yes. They were just slightly different, but they still had the same kind of vibe into what they did. And they had this, this awesome origin story that they started to tell uh, about how, you know, Undertaker, their family ran a funeral parlor and he accidentally burnt his brother Kane and now Kane comes back as a fully grown also seven foot monster but now his face is covered he can't talk he has to use like a voice box because everything's been burnt from head to toe um so the, the the origin story and also just that that kind of mystery around it all you, mm. and I remember just going to school and you talk about the mates like oh I heard that I heard that Kane like everything's burnt except for his knee. And like, I heard that um, like Undertaker was doing this when they were kids. And even though you knew it wasn't legit, you all all had these theories over what was actually behind the bodysuit and the mask and and what really happened and and all this kind of stuff. There was just so much intrigue into what they did. And obviously they told that story very, very well where it wasn't about the wrestling. You didn't care who won between Undertaker and Kane. You, ne- you, never ca- you never cared whatsoever. It wasn't about the championships with those two. It was about what are they going to do next? Mm. And, uh, you know, occasionally they would come back together and they'd form a little 
alliance and it was like, oh, the brothers are working together, like Cain's forgiven him. And then suddenly he would turn on him because, you know, their crazy uncle Paul Bearer, <laughs> beautiful, beautiful pun of a name, uh, used the dark side to earn. use the urn full of ashes, which had supernatural powers to convince Cain to turn on his brother. And yeah, that were his parents' ashes, right? I believe so. I believe so. The ashes of his parents. I think you're right. Yeah. No, I just remember the debut of Kane. Like they built him up for weeks and then he came out. Oh, who was Undertaker wrestling? He was in a Hell in a Cell, not Hell in a Cell, in a cage match. Who was it? Yeah, the Hell in a Cell was with Sean and that's when Kane made his debut. That's right. Yeah, it was the first one. Yeah, the first Hell in a Cell. And, and Kane came out and just ripped the door off the cage. Like, yeah. and then the whole. The, the thing that really grabbed me there was like they build up this big monster cane and then this big monster cane comes out, rips the door off the cell, gets in and Undertaker refuses to fight him. He goes, no, I'm not going to yeah. fight my own brother. I'm not yeah. going to fight my own brother. And then throughout the next couple of weeks, Kane's just attacking him, trying to provoke him, trying to get him. And Undertaker's like, no, I won't fight my blood. I won't fight my blood. Then eventually he went, all right, we're going to fight. And just a great build and a, a great look at those characters. You know, Undertaker was a face at the time, a good guy. So, of course, he was going to have morals. He was going to, you know, take the high ground and not, you know, go against his own ethics. Uh, but Kane just wanted revenge and he'd been training all his life to get, oh, yeah, great, great uh, storytelling. Um, and and so, so fresh as well. Like, you, didn't, you just didn't see that kind of dynamic and that kind of storytelling uh, for someone to not fight back. And, and they would slowly, slowly build it until it finally peaked and you finally got that payoff. Yeah. Uh, it wasn't as much as TV back then was car crash and it was all like action, 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 payoff, payoff, payoff. Kane and Undertaker was the one storyline that they built slowly or at yeah. least it felt slowly compared to the others. Yeah. Um, speaking of the Undertaker, the second Hell in a Cell match, King of the Ring 1998 with Mankind. What were your thoughts on seeing poor old Mick Foley get thrown off the top of a 20-foot cage onto a table? I mean, I started watching in 99. So by that point, you, you had seen the video and that you always saw the highlights of the throw. I didn't actually see the match itself two years later, but I mean, it wasn't much of a match anyway. It was just no. the first thing that happened was they both climbed to the top of this massive cage and mankind got thrown off. Um, I, I, I got big into to Mick Foley from very early on because of those kinds of risks and those kind of stunts. That was just, you always kind of thought, how did they do that? And, and that's, that was the beautiful thing of wrestling. It was all live TV. And you, you know, you'd, you'd have these, these rumors and theories like at school, it was, I remember one, one kid was like, Oh no, there's a, the table has a button and the commentator presses a button on the table so that when they go through it, then it breaks. And then they're like, oh, no, there's like, there's this compressed airbag underneath the table. So it's really just like a trampoline. Like you'd hear all these theories, but then you would see it happen live and you're like, nah, come on. Like that's, <laughs> that's insane. That was ridiculous. It was. And, uh, yeah, man. He, Foley, Foley was, he, he brought that kind of, that ECW hardcore style the the stunt action that you just had not seen before and he was that's what he was known for so watching a Mick Foley match it was always like all right what's the crazy thing he's gonna do this time and I think that's what really got me into him obviously he was a very endearing character as well very lovable kind of like this a little bit of like an an idiot mm. savant kind of thing like you know he he was you you felt you felt a lot of sympathy for him because he was a little bit stupid, a little bit not right in the head, would take a lot of risk and would get just his head battered in, but would never give up. And that's really what made you love him. Like he was, he was pure babyface. Uh, even though he had, he definitely had like an evil streak and a deranged side. He, he was really that pure babyface that no one else was in that era. Mm. All right, so um, lots happened in that time period, but uh, I'm going to say a couple of things now and just get your reaction from them and see if you actually know what happened when uh, these lines or these, uh, these few words were uttered. Uh, they all took part in the Attitude Era. Let's just see how good your, your memory is. Um, so the first one is a quote. 
I choppy choppy your pee pee. That was um, the Kayentai manager. Um, yep. To Val Venus. Uh, yep. What was his name? Uh, I should know this one. I can, I can remember everyone in Kayentai except for their manager. <laughs> uh, anyway, but yeah, that was with Val Venus and then the lights went off and you didn't know whether said PP was choppy choppied. Yeah, so Val Venus was strung up uh, after, yeah. was it uh, he had an affair with the manager's wife? Yes. And they uh, found out. Yeah. It was the wife, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so Val Venus was a porn star character, an yep. adult film star, they, they said. And uh, Hello Ladies was his, uh, his tagline, his punchline. And um, yeah, that was the storyline, was that they were going to take away his adult entertainment career. By choppy, choppy, yeah. In, in one of the, <laughs> yeah. Uh, a lot of the Attitude Era isn't safe for consumption nowadays. We will just say that. Uh, the Kennel from Hell. Oh, God, yeah. <laughs> Big boss man in our snow. Um, here's the thing, right? We've, we've spoken about a lot of the very, very riveting, very well-booked storylines between the top guys. Mm-hmm. You go back and watch Attitude there and you watch some of those mid-card and lower-card rivalries, their storylines were terrible. Oh, yeah. It's so dumb and you don't know who, who what was the purpose of it? Like, who's this supposed to get over here? Um, mm-hmm. Insane now. I loved every second of it when I was a kid. Um, but yeah, uh, our snow had a dog called Pepper who was a chihuahua, and Boss Man decided to one day feed Pepper to our snow without his knowledge. He called it Pepper Steak, I believe. Yep. And uh, our snow then realized later that he'd just eaten his own dog. So they had a match, which was a cage inside of a Hell in a Cell, which was a giant cage. And surrounding the outside of the ring were a whole bunch of dogs who were meant to be really fearsome so that if you escaped, I think the goal was to escape both cages. Mm-hmm. If you escaped the first cage, now you had to contend with a whole bunch of murderous dogs. Turns out the dogs were not murderous at all. They were lovely little little things. And yep. they just ended up uh, crapping all over ringside and did absolutely nothing to look dangerous whatsoever. So, <laughs> That was an abomination of a match, but uh, I still remember enjoying it as a kid. So Really? On. Yeah, I think I loved everything, honestly. Oh, gosh. I could get. That's the beauty about WWE being on live TV and live pay-per-view as well. They often have these kinds of things and they can't cover them up. And all they can do is sort of just push them to the side and, uh, yeah, that never happened. Uh, you always get a few awkward camera angles. You get a few crowd shots so you know something's up. Yep. Uh, I did it for The Rock. I did it for the people. That was Rikishi. Yeah. Rikishi. Uh, Rikishi. Oh, there was a big long angle where uh, Stone Cold got hit with a car uh, and you didn't know who it was going to be. And then it got revealed as The Rock's uh, cousin, I guess, uh, Rikishi. Um, again, something, I think that's a bit of a polarizing angle. I think a lot of people look down on it, but I thought it was, I thought it was good. And well, it definitely built Rikishi up from that kind of almost. Uh, comedic jokey hip-hop dancing fat guy character Mm. um and to become this serious heel i thought that was really cool and different for him i think what most people didn't like about it was the fact that he was so loved and and the turn just left a sour taste in their mouth but also it became more about triple h versus the rock as opposed to rikishi or austin when austin came back he he finally whooped rikishi and then it was just sort of dropped there was no yeah the payoff wasn't sort of worth the build or, or the storytelling oh. leading up to it yeah and i never really did much to launch rikishi i mean he had a little bit of a run uh near the top but he never really reached that champion no level. no and, uh, speaking of people not reaching champion material and, and this character sure should have can you please explain for me naked midian naked midian uh midian was a member of the ministry who was a. Uh, a tattooed up uh, evil gothic dude. He was kind of like a follower of The Undertaker. He used to have this eyeball that he kept in a jar that like almost possessed him, I think. Um, and I really liked Midian. He, he was definitely the guy. He was like the, the fodder for the ministry. So they used him to kind of lose. If they had to lose, ministry was the, uh, Midian was the one getting pinned. Yep. Um, but he, for some reason, for about a month, had this character where he would go streaking. And he'd wear a bum bag. I think he had a bum bag. He had a bum bag and would just run through matches streaking. And I had yep. no idea why. And it didn't lead to anything. 
No, they dropped it very, very quickly. Uh, did he have a match and he had some skins on? I swear he had one match. Uh, or maybe one on pay-per-view. I don't know if he had any on, on Raw or SmackDown or whatever, but um, I think he had one. But I don't Yeah, <laughs> that, that just went to nothing very quickly. And a lot of the time, you don't know if these were actual storylines or if uh, they were just ribs that the guys in the back felt like playing on a, a wrestler because that happens quite a lot. Uh, you... Wrestling was a very petty, petty industry, or at least it was a lot more back then. And yeah, there were a lot of ribs played on people for whatever reason, just because either they did something wrong to rub, rub someone in power the wrong way or someone in power thought it was funny. Yep. Speaking of power... See if you can guess where this next quote comes from. I don't think you'll have a problem with it. <clears throat> it was me, Austin. It was me all along. Yeah, that was Vince getting revealed as the greater power. So they had this hooded, mysterious figure. And uh, at the time, uh, I think that's when Undertaker was, had, that would have been corporate ministry, I think. The corporation so, and the ministry yeah. were separate. Yeah. And uh, Undertaker yeah. revealed that there was a higher power. And you'd That's see right. just this druid in a hood that Undertaker would kneel down to, but we never knew and who it was. Undertaker had, um, Undertaker had kidnapped Stephanie McMahon, who was Vince's daughter. And that was kind of Stephanie first getting herself onto TV um, mm-hmm. and became a bigger figure later. So yeah, she, he kidnapped her and Stone Cold was helping to rescue her. So for the first time, Stone Cold and Vince were kind of working together. Um, but then, uh, yeah, this I, I, I could be getting my timelines mixed a little. But yeah, Undertaker revealed this druid in a, in a hood and it turned out to be Vince. So Vince had obviously used his daughter as a bit of a pawn in his game to screw Stone Cold over. So again, yep. a lot of swerves and twists in, in that story. But the biggest swerve there was, yeah, as you mentioned, uh, Austin and McMahon were getting along. Like They both yeah. fought together to rescue Steph from The Undertaker. Um, and then that storyline then was the catalyst for Stephanie McMahon turning and joining with Triple H uh, yes. against Vince and Shane later on down the track because of uh, retribution for, well, better not say that, uh, revenge for, for Vince using her as a, uh, a, a pawn in his games with Austin. Um, yeah, it was mixed with, yeah. Again, one of those twists I didn't see coming and I didn't believe that they did it because they set these rules that this is what Vince was doing and then for him to completely go against it. Just, again, a, a swerve, a, a, yeah, a twist that you didn't see coming. And I just, uh, stuff like that I really enjoy. You've got to wonder if they had that planned out well ahead of time or if they just kind of played it by ear um, because it was very cleverly done and, and you never really, you just never saw these things coming, even though in hindsight, obviously this is something Vince would do. Vince hates Austin eternally. He's hmm. always going to hate Austin. He's going to do whatever he can. So you should have kind of seen those, those uh, warning bells. But, um, yeah, you just never really picked it. They did it so cleverly that you started to doubt yourself a lot. Right. The end of the Attitude Era. The company ceased its Attitude promotion on May 6th, 2002, when the usage of the initials WWF, which were predominant within the logo, became prohibited as a result of a legal battle between the company known as the World Wildlife Fund over the rights to legally use those initials. I believe the WWF, the World Wildlife Fund, actually gave permission for um, World Wrestling Federation to use those initials as long as they didn't get too big. And guess what? They got a lot big. Uh, World Wrestling Federation Entertainment Incorporated officially became World Wrestling Entertainment uh, and the attitude promotion was replaced with Get the F Out marketing campaign. Shortly thereafter, the company transitioned into its ruthless aggression era. This period is still featured as many elements of its predecessor, including the level of violence and amount of profanity, but there was less sexual and politically incorrect content, and a further emphasis on wrestling was showcased. And thus ended the Attitude Era. Now, we haven't had a chance talking to some of the other huge things that happened in this period, like 99 Jericho's perfect debut. Um the radicals uh, jumping ship and, and coming on over and bringing their wealth of wrestling expertise, Kurt Angle's debut, um, the TLC matches. There's so much within those eight years or so that we haven't got into, but uh, we've already gone way over time. So maybe we'll do a part two down the track, but for now, Damien Slater, do you have anything you want to plug? Oh, sure. Um, I always like plugging my own stuff. Uh, you can find me on all forms of social media. If you just search up Damien Slater, uh, I do have a YouTube channel that has been something I've focused on the last couple of years called World Beater Wrestling. 
Uh, if you look up worldbeaterwrestling.com, uh, it's a place where I put a lot of breakdowns into wrestling uh, move tutorials, as well as different conditioning drills for aspiring wrestlers to get you into shape. Uh, and I do a lot of just general advice and uh, information for professional wrestlers and even just fans of wrestling who are interested in the behind the scenes. So I put out weekly videos every Thursday. Uh, head to worldbeaterwrestling.com. Give us a, a little cheeky subscribe would be much appreciated. Uh, but otherwise, if you are someone who enjoys wrestling, enjoyed the Attitude Era, but you've never really checked out anything in Australia, get on board. We, we, everything's starting to kind of come back and open up now, but there are fantastic promotions uh, in all states of Australia and the Australian scene is really starting to pick up and get noticed overseas. So uh, I guarantee if you come to a local event, you will enjoy yourself. And you can also check us out over on Hack the Dino. That's Hack the Dino on youtube.com backslash Hack the Dino or over on twitch.tv backslash Hack the Dino, which is where we talk about video games and video game news. It's a, this is sort of a spin-off uh, production of that, but I just wanted you know, the captured audience to launch my podcast so it wasn't a horrible uh, failure. Uh, you can also uh, head on over to Retro Trigger. Be sure to subscribe over there and do all the things that he said, but for us. Uh, until next time... Uh, Slater, quick, say, say a promo line. Quick. Uh, if you smell what the, the, the pack of the dinos cooking. Yes, there it is. <laughs>